Well, this morning we um, we have a treat. So this morning um, we have a guest speaker, and it is Randy Adams. Randy. And um, Randy is the executive director of the Northwest Baptist Convention. And I met Randy probably 10 years ago. Um, uh, he's a native to the Northwest. I'm not. Um, but both of us had, for differing reasons, um, lived down south. You, you were in Oklahoma, right? Oklahoma and Texas. Um, I was in Texas for about six years going to grad school. Um, but yeah, um, Randy and Paula lived down in Oklahoma and Texas for, for many years. And uh, Randy was a pastor there. He's got great experience as a pastor. He has amazing experience as an a, a associational leader. Um, the Northwest Baptist Convention has about 500 churches, and Randy serves these churches in a variety of ways. Um, I, I remember the first time meeting you, and, and Randy was welcoming us to the Northwest Baptist Convention, just the amazing hospitality that you guys showed, um, and, and yeah, just the love from, from you. Um, Randy is a great servant of the Lord, uh, an amazing speaker, and I know we'll be blessed by him this morning. He's also a source of great encouragement. So, Randy, come on up here. Thank you. Pastor, appreciate that, Adam. It is wonderful to be with you this morning. Great to worship with you, and I so appreciate Adam and Kim, and have a great deal of respect for them. Not every person who starts a church starts another church, but they have, and they are, and you already are a church. You're not that old, but you know, most churches don't have 50 people in them on Sunday morning. As a matter of fact, in Oklahoma, I just read an article, 57% are under 50 on Sunday morning, and that's true in the Northwest as well. And so you have a great, great beginning, and what a joy to have a baptism tonight. That's very, very exciting, and to see what God's doing, to reach people and make disciples, and we're uh, overjoyed to be a part of that. And we are a small part of that as, as, as you are a part of our convention work. Our convention, by the way, is pretty interesting uh, because... We have 27 different languages, maybe 28 now, because we have a Mayan group that's starting up in the northeast part of, uh, northwest part of Washington. But we have a lot of different languages. About a third of our churches worship in a language other than English. Anyone want to guess what's the second most common language to English? Spanish is probably. It's real close now, but Korean. Korean has been, 40 Korean language churches. For the last two years, we've started more Spanish language than anything else. We've started 73 churches in the last three years, and uh, probably at least a third of those are Spanish-speaking. That's a real fast-growing group. Uh, but we have a lot of Russian. I was in a Russian church not long ago. We'll be in a Ukrainian church in, in probably a few weeks. Uh, we have 15 Russian and Ukrainian. We have a dozen Vietnamese. Uh, and then Mandarin, Chinese, Cantonese, Chinese, Japanese, lots of different languages, Burmese languages, three different language groups from Myanmar or Burma. So anyway, it's a lot of fun. And by the way, the way we're able to do that is because we do cooperate together. Your church and all of these churches uh, cooperate together so that we can do things an individual church can't do. Even a really, really big church wouldn't know how to go start a Japanese language church, most likely. But together, we can bring the skills and the gifts and the funding and everything needed to start churches in all these different groups that are now in the Northwest. And uh, matter of fact, I'll tell you, one of the new groups that we don't have a church uh, around yet is Afghans, Afghanistan. However, we have a Korean pastor who's pastoring an English-language church, and last spring had 20 Afghan refugee children show up at his church. 
And my parents actually served as international missionaries in Pakistan and Afghanistan and that part of the world, and he knew that, so he called me and said, what do I do with these Afghans? Long story short, there's now two groups of Afghans meeting in two of our churches in federal way. Both are in federal way. A lot of these refugees have come to that area, and we've identified an Afga- a possible Afghan pastor who's now in Canada, another one in Oklahoma. And so we pray and we hope that we'll have a, a church emerge among those Afghan peoples. But that's kind of the way it works. We have a, 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 a Spanish-language church in Crestwell, Oregon. By the way, our churches are in Washington, Oregon, and North Idaho. And one of the really cool stories in a new church last year, this is a brand-new church, and they had about 30 people doing well. Eduardo Lohr is the pastor, doing great. And then a man who owned a sawmill, who's a Christian, and most everyone who works for him is Spanish, he asked Eduardo, would you come teach a Bible study for my workers on Sunday night. And Eduardo said, yeah, I'll do that. The very first Sunday night, he had 20 or 30. Okay, fast forward about nine months. They have about 120 now every week. 70% are men. Uh, At least 31 have accepted Jesus and received him as Savior. As a matter of fact, this summer, last summer, they had their very first baptism. They baptized 21 in their first baptism. And the, the owner of the mill realized we have no place to baptize. Three days before the baptism, he brought in a backhoe, dug and put in an in-ground swimming pool, literally, <laughs> literally put in a swimming pool so they could do the baptism and maybe other things as well. But they've continued to reach people. It's so fantastic. By the way, this guy's a Christian, the owner of the mill, but he's not a member of one of our churches. But, he, but we're the ones who have the Spanish pastors and all these different language groups. And so, uh, and he noticed that this, I don't know if this will happen for you, Adam, but I don't think you drive a car quite as beat up as his car. <laughs> he had no heat in his car. He had no air conditioner. The car was a, in bad shape. So the owner of the mill noticed that. And he asked one of my staff, he said, uh, find out what car Eduardo would want if he could have any car of his choosing. And he found out he liked to have a Toyota Highlander, and so the man bought him a brand new, fully loaded, leather interior Toyota Highlander. Uh, God does things. God does things. So anyway, you're a part of all that work. Disaster relief, we've had teams. We just had one of our disaster relief volunteers get the award for organizing the disaster relief effort in Lahaina, Maui. So we've had quite a few Northwesterners doing disaster relief work in Hawaii. Japan, right now, we have some people involved in Japan with the recent earthquake. Just a lot going on in in the work of disaster relief as well. There's a lot of other things I could talk about. But I want to get to the text. We're going to be in Philippians chapter 2 today. And this is a great passage that I think relates well to ministry and advancing the kingdom in the times in which we live which are not so different really than any time. There's always been, everywhere and in every time, we have pushed back darkness. We have expanded the kingdom in the midst of war and animosity and darkness. And certainly that was true for the church in Philippi. And notice what Paul writes to this church. Philippians chapter 2, beginning with verse 12, we'll read through verse 18. He says, Therefore, my dear friends... Just as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but even more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And this is really the key verse, I think, verse 13. For it is God who is working in you, 
both to will and to work according to his good purpose. How can you work out your salvation? Well, the way you work it out through your obedience is because God is at work in you according to his good purpose. Do everything, in verse 14, without grumbling and arguing, so that you may be blameless and pure, children of God who are faultless in a crooked and perverted generation, among whom you shine like stars in the world by holding firm to the word of life. Then I can boast in the day of Christ that I didn't run or labor for nothing. But even if I am poured out as a drink offering on the sacrificial service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. In the same way, you should also be glad and rejoice with me. One of the benefits of reading history, and I like to read history, I'm reading a book by Henry Kissinger right now, the last one he wrote, which really focuses on six of the great leaders of the last half of the 20th century. It's really, really quite fascinating. But a book I read shortly before that was one that my kids gave me for Father's Day, and it was called The Wager. And it's about a British warship that had a mutiny and murder and just all kinds of disaster during the War for Jenkins' Ear. Anybody here ever hear of the War for Jenkins' Ear or of Jenkins' Ear? You did. Okay. You read the book. Isn't it a good book? It is a very, it's an interesting book. Well, Robert Jenkins was a British merchant captain, and uh, in 1738, a Spanish officer boarded his ship, accused him of stealing sugar, and cut off his left ear. (laughs) And so Jenkins didn't like that so well, but he kept his ear, and he went to the British Parliament with his ear in a pickle jar, and he told them the story about this Spaniard cutting off his ear. Well, they didn't like that, so they cried ear for an ear and shouted for blood, and, they, and a war ensued between Great Britain and Spain. It's known as the War of Jenkins' Ear, and 50,000 men died in that war. 50,000 men. Now, I haven't told you the whole book, have I? Read the book. There's a lot more there. But 50,000 men. It just reminded me of the absurdity and the violence, and there's always just crazy stuff going on in our world. And God's people have always been advancing his kingdom in the midst of just nonsense. I thought about that with the Hamas, murderous, vile, evil attack in Israel. And now, of course, what's going on? We don't know all that's going on with Iran and all of the stuff that's going on right now. But that's really the way it's always been throughout history. As a matter of fact, you might know that when when Paul wrote Philippians, he wrote it from a jail, from a prison cell. If you go back to chapter 1, just a page back, and verse, uh, verse 12, this is what Paul says regarding where he is when he wrote Philippians. He says, now I want you to know, brothers and sisters... That what has happened to me has actually advanced the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to everyone else that my imprisonment is because I am in Christ. Most of the brothers 
have gained confidence in the Lord from my imprisonment and dare even more to speak the word fearlessly. Isn't that interesting? You would think that in order to destroy the faith, which is what the emperor wanted to do, uh, that you would take the greatest missionary of the faith, the Apostle Paul, arrest him, put him in prison, and now he can't do his work. But what Paul said is his imprisonment actually, rather than making the rest of the church fearful, it made them more bold in advancing the faith. Our enemy, our spiritual enemy, often he, 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 always, he overplays his hand, you know. He does things in order to hurt us that actually serve to make us love God more and serve God better. As a matter of fact, at the end of Philippians, in chapter 4, verse 22, Paul's just bringing greetings to the church. And this is one of the most amazing uh, little statements made in, in Philippians. He says, All the saints send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. So here Paul is imprisoned by Caesar. And while in, there was, by the way, there was a, uh, there's a traditional statement not found in Scripture that said that they had to change Paul's guard every other week because that's how long it took them to receive Jesus, you know. And then they had to get new guards in there. But the, but the Caesar, uh, whose household was coming to faith, was Nero. Now, some of, and, and some of you might know that name Nero because he's, he's regarded as one of the most vile rulers ever to rule on the face of the earth. He's not the most destructive, but he was a vile person. He murdered his mother. He murdered his wife. He murdered a lot of Christians. When Rome burned in 64 AD, he blamed Christians and he persecuted the church. That was the first great persecution of the church in the city of Rome. In fact, Nero burned Christians in his garden as human candles. That's how vile this man was. It was under Nero that Peter was crucified upside down. It was under Nero that Paul was eventually beheaded. We think in a subsequent imprisonment, not this one. We think he got out this time. But later, Nero had Paul killed. So he's a horrible person. And yet, this person who's trying to stamp out the church can't even prevent his own family, his own household, from coming to faith. It's really quite remarkable. And it's helpful for a new church like yours and living in the times in which we are to remember that. That as dark as things might... Paul talks in this text about it being a dark world, a perverted world. I mean, do you look around and see perversion anywhere in our world? You remember our governor in this state just last May signed into law that if a child wants transgender surgery or an abortion and the parents say no, the child can go, if they're over age, I think, 13 or 14, they can go to a provider and say, I want this, but don't tell my parents, and the state of Washington will help them be hidden from their parents and will pay for the procedure. Who would have ever guessed, certainly not me when I was growing up, that we would see that in the United States and right here where we live. And by the way, the kid can come from Oklahoma or Texas and get the procedure and not tell the parents. Okay, that's the kind of world in which we live. But the world's always been that way to some extent. There's always been issues and challenges and things that the church has had to overcome and that God uh, sends his people into. I mean, that's why we have missionaries in China and Japan and 
Russia and parts unknown. Because people need Jesus in these dark places, just like people in Pasco and the Tri-Cities need Jesus. And by the way, we may not be living in a warfare, but there are homes in this town that are experiencing just a horrendous situation. Husbands and wives and children. So you don't have to go overseas or a great distance to find people who are in a desperate situation. In fact, Adam prayed about that. He mentioned that there may be people here who are struggling right now with just horrendous issues. Well, the gospel liberates us in the midst of our context. As a matter of fact, one of the things that Paul says that I think is so helpful, he says, God is working in you according to his good purpose. Sometimes we're tempted to think that our circumstances or our context could limit the work of God in our life. But that's crazy thinking. Our circumstances, our context, the darkness, the perversion, whatever it might be, does not and cannot limit the work of God in you and through your church. God is at work in you according to His good purpose. The work that God is doing in you is a good work and His power prevails even in the midst of the most dire circumstances. One of the realities in the New Testament is that believers understood in the New Testament that they were pilgrims in a dark world. That this world is not our home. That this is a a place where we are for now, but that ultimately we expect to be in a heavenly home in eternity. And our citizenship literally is there, even more so than here. In fact, Paul talks about that. If you go to the third chapter, verse 20, he says our citizenship is, is in heaven. Now, the church of Philippi, like much of the world in that day, they they were suffering. And it was helpful for them to know that, that they had a citizenship higher than their earthly citizenship. He said, our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. He will transform the body of our humble condition into the likeness of His glorious body by the power that enables Him to subject everything to Himself. That's an incredible statement. Jesus will transform the body of our humble condition into the likeness of His glorious body. That is the expectation for which we labor and for which we wait. That's the reality of the fact that our citizenship is in heaven. See, the context that the Philippian church was serving in and that our text is set in, the context is really two things. One is the darkness and the perversion of the world. He said, you're in a dark world in which you shine like stars in the night. That's my preferable description, stars in the night. And the second thing is uh, we are awaiting the coming of Christ. We we live now in the way that we do, understanding that this world is moving in a certain direction that will culminate in the coming of Christ, the consummation of all history. 
And this world will end as we now know it, and Christ will set up his glorious, heavenly, eternal kingdom. And that reality, that certainty, helps us get through dark and difficult days because we know where we're going. In fact, that's why Paul says that he expects in our text to boast in the day of Christ. That he didn't labor for nothing. No matter that he's in prison now and suffering now, he's not laboring for nothing because on the day of Christ, it will be revealed that his work, his gospel work, which resulted in a church in Philippi and Ephesus and Corinth and other places, that will show itself to be the glory that it is in the coming age. So, the context in which God is at work in you and me is the context of a dark world, but the certainty of the coming of Christ. By the way, does anybody know what Philippi was famous for in the ancient world? There was a battle. In fact, it was the biggest battle between two Roman armies ever fought. It happened in Philippi. It's called the Battle of Philippi. It happened decades before our text. But Philippi was famous for this battle. It was between Brutus and Cassius and Octavian and Mark Antony. They were the principal generals in the battle. Brutus and Cassius, what were they famous for? They were the betrayers of Julius Caesar. They were the ones most responsible for the death of Julius Caesar. And they wanted to rule the empire. And Octavian, who became Augustus Caesar, the Caesar when Jesus was born, Octavian and Mark Antony joined forces. They later had a falling out. Antony and Cleopatra. (laughs) Same Antony. But in the battle of Philippi, it was Brutus and Cassius and Octavian and Antony, about 200,000 Roman soldiers clashed in that battle. Tens of thousands were slaughtered. Brutus and Cassius died. And that's what Philippi was famous for in the ancient world, is that great battle. Philippi was sort of like Gettysburg, famous as blood-soaked ground. But Gettysburg is also famous because on that blood-soaked ground, stood a man, Abraham Lincoln, who spoke the Gettysburg Address. Children still memorize that. It still inspires us to this day, the Gettysburg Address. Philippi, if Philippi is known by you and most today, it's not known for the Battle of Philippi. What's it known for? It's known because it was there that a woman named Lydia a seller of purple cloth, had her heart opened by God when Paul presented the gospel to her. And that's the way it says in the book of Acts. God opened her heart and she received Christ. She and her entire household, and they were all baptized. That's what you and I know about Philippi. What we know about Philippi is there was a jailer. We just call him the Philippian jailer. We don't know his name. But the Philippian jailer, likewise, when Paul was imprisoned in Philippi, 
because Paul was also imprisoned in Philippi, you might remember, not just Rome. He was imprisoned in a lot of places. And in Philippi, the Philippian jailer thought that Paul and the others were going to escape and he was going to take his own life. He thought he was in a world of hurt. And Paul said, no, 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 don't, don't take your life. It's all right. We're all here. And beginning from that, Paul presented Jesus to the Philippian jailer. And he too was saved. He and his entire household, and they were baptized. See, what Philippi is famous for, for you and me, is what God did there. A place famous for the shedding of blood became a place famous for what God did. Now think about us. Some of you come from families in which there are things you'd rather not talk about. Just, you know, your family was famous for the wrong things. Your family in the town in which you were from or they were from was known for not so good things. But God can take that and beginning there and change what your family is known for. Because the gospel overcomes our sinfulness, our past history. It did for Mary Magdalene, who was a prostitute. It did for Matthew, who was a conniving tax collector. Swindler, probably. There are towns in the Northwest that are famous for the wrong things. How do you change what's going on in the town? You change by presenting the gospel and gathering people who believe in Jesus and forming a church. And from that church, you begin to shine like stars in the community. Not just as a gathered body of believers, but when you're out working, teaching school, working in the shops and the offices and going to school and wherever you are through the week, you're not just the church here, right? You're the church there. Wherever you are during the week, shining like a star in the night. That's what happened in Philippi. That's what happens here. The church in Philippi, interestingly, we don't know much of what happened in this church after this. Paul wrote a letter to the church in Philippi. We know that Paul was the first to preach the gospel and found the church. But what happened to the church in Philippi? Well, in the second century, a man named Polycarp, he was a famous believer in the second century. He died as a martyr. He wrote a letter to the church in Philippi. And he commended them as a, as a, as a people who loved the Lord. He did say that some in the church had given their lives for Christ. He doesn't say who. But it makes you wonder, was it Lydia? Was it her children or grandchildren or the jailer's grandchildren? Who was it in the church that at some point gave their lives for Christ? We don't know. What I would say is, we don't know what tomorrow's going to bring for our country, for your family, for your own life. Will we be alive tomorrow? We don't know. 
you don't know, those of you who are raising kids or have grandkids, what, what is this world going to be? And we, we often think about that, don't we, in some fashion. What's this world going to be for my kids and grandkids in five years, 10 years, 30 years, 50 years? What will the world that they inherit be? We don't know that, but here's what we do know. There is, by the way, there is, at, are, are the kids somewhere right now? Are there kids out doing something? Okay, there, there is nothing more important going on in this church, I would suspect, right now, than whatever is happening with those kids. <laughs> I, I assume they're being taught. <laughs> I assume they're being taught about Jesus. What I would tell you is this. Our worldview and most of what we think is determined by age 13. And though there may be someone here above age 13 who will have their life radically changed today, and if you come to Jesus, that's true for you. But if it's not, what's most important is what you're doing with those kids. Because the spiritual warfare that we're experiencing is really targeted at children. They have the hearts and minds most shapeable and moldable. And you don't know what the world's going to be that they grow up to. But what you can do is prepare their hearts and minds with the truth of God's Word. You can disciple them so that they know the truth and they walk and they not just know it, they obey the truth. And that's what the text says, obeying God's Word, not just knowing it. And so you can train them up to know and obey so that whatever may come, they will stand. They'll stand. Because even here today, people lose jobs over Christian convictions. Now, your kids and maybe some of you have lost a job or your job's been affected because of your faith. You have to prepare people for that especially young people. So we don't know too much more about this church. Tertullian, another second century leader, said they were an exemplary church. He wrote them a letter. They didn't have a building. It appeared, by the way, I don't want to discourage you <laughs> about buildings, but maybe this would encourage you. They didn't have a building. Archaeologically, we had, hadn't found a building until the fourth century. The church in Paul's day was probably smaller than your church. It's probably 30 people, 20, 30, 40. We really don't know. But what we do know is there's no archaeological evidence of the building until the 4th century. By the 6th century, there was a horrible plague in, I think it was 547, that killed tons of people in Philippi. And then there was an earthquake in 619 that destroyed the city and left a small village, and the church disappeared from history. You ever thought about that? Most of these New Testament churches, they're not here today. Church in Ephesus, not here. Corinth, not here. Churches have a lifespan. Sometimes it's hundreds of years, sometimes less. But does a church ever really die? Paul said that he expected to boast in the day of Christ about this church in Philippi, because a church is an eternal thing. It goes on forever and forever. You won't gather together in heaven as a church, but you will be there 
with all those who are part of the church of the Lord Jesus. So you're an eternal bond. What you're doing here lasts forever and forever. And Paul understood that when he said, I'm going to boast in what the church in Philippi is. Even though the day would come when there would be no physical church of Philippi on the earth. By the way, he says, I love the imagery. This dark and perverted world in which you shine like stars in the world. I love that imagery. Do you know how many stars there are in the night sky? If you get in a really dark place on a clear night, you could see up to four or 5,000 stars with the naked eye, if you have good eyesight. You could count, you could count four to 5,000. However, scientists tell us that stars are so thick in the night sky, if you could see them all, if you held a dime at arm's length, that dime would block 12 to 14 million stars. Anyone have a cell phone? Get out your phone. <laughs> Ask Siri, how many stars are there in the universe? Ask Siri, how many stars are there in the universe? I've already done this, okay? I'm not going to ask a question I don't know the answer to. But go ahead. It, it's all right, unless you don't have cell service. And then sh shout it out. How many stars? Say, Siri, how many stars in the universe? That's exactly right. That's what Siri told me, too. <laughs> uh, Siri doesn't know everything, but she knows more than I do. 200 billion trillion stars. Now, did Siri tell you how many uh, galaxies there are? Okay, why don't you ask? Yes, greater than 200 billion. Galaxies. And galaxy, each galaxy would average about a trillion stars and 200 billion galaxies. There are more, not only more stars, but more galaxies than there are people that have ever lived on the face of the earth. And Adam mentioned names are difficult. God knows the name of every single star. Isaiah says. He has them all numbered and named. 200 billion trillion. Now, we shine like stars in the night. This is sort of, this is just sort of some thinking. I'm winding down here. We're going to pray. Sometimes we wonder what kind of victory God will have through the gospel and through his work on earth. In other words, how many will actually be in heaven? Well, probably not 200 billion trillion, because there aren't that many humans, unless this world goes on for a long, long time. But do you know what the number one killer in the world was last year? The number one source of death, it's always been this way for a long time now, it was abortion. So you think of all the wars and the diseases, malaria and heart disease and cancer, the various forms of cancer, a 12 million abortions last year in the world. It's the number one uh, form of death. So I believe 
that all of those children are with God. And then you take infant mortality, which is quite high in parts of the world. A lot of children die young before they reach the age of accountability. I think, personally, that God takes them to himself as well. Then you add that to those like us who can respond to, in faith to Christ. And I just think that heaven is going to be much more populous than we might imagine. And there's going to be a whole lot of shining stars in heaven among the people who came to faith in Christ and the innocence that God took to himself throughout all of history. See, I'm actually a quite hopeful person, though when I look at the direction of things in our country, I can get <laughs> discouraged or upset or any number of emotions, kind of go through the process of grief sometimes. When I see the direction of the church in general and our nation as well, I try to remind myself the gospel is powerful to save in any and every context. And we're not the only people there are. There's, do you know Africa has more Christians, more people who say they're Christians in Africa than Europe and North America combined? Over 400 million. You know how many Christians were in Africa in the year 1900? was about a million. Now 400 million. In China, in 1950, a, a one or two million Christians. Today, somewhere around 100 million Christians in China. As a matter of fact, in China, the percent of weekly worshipers in China is about the same as it is here in the Northwest. Yeah, the total number is about the same as the United States. 40 to 60 million weekly worshipers in China. It's probably about where we are in the United States. So God is doing a great work in a lot of wonder. And by the way, you're a part of that because you help support missions all over the world in your giving through the cooperative program. So thank you for that. And I hope you take encouragement from this text because God is at work. And he's at work in you. And he's at work through you. And I'm just so very grateful to see you today. Because I remember when this church was launched not so very long ago. And it's just wonderful to be with you today. Let's pray. Oh, by the way, before I pray, I do want to say, if there's someone here who says, I just don't get it. Because I've not given my heart to Jesus yet. You can do that this very day. We've sung about it. We prayed about it. Jesus shed his blood so that your sin could be forgiven and washed away. We're not only forgiven, we're cleansed. So that when God looks at us, he doesn't see our sinfulness. He sees the perfection of his son, Jesus. So if you'll ask, Jesus, come into my life, forgive me of my sin, be my Savior and my God forevermore. The Bible says, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And I would encourage you then to tell Adam or someone in this church that you know and trust, share with them or ask them for help in how to pray and receive Jesus today. Let's pray. 
Father, we are grateful for your goodness to us, and I, I so thank you for this church. I thank you, Father, for what you've done in such a short time and what you're going to do in the days, months, and years ahead. Thank you for those in this church, many of whom committed with Kim and Adam to come here and found a new body of believers. And I just thank you for those people and pray you'd bless them. Help us, Father, to labor in joy and confidence that you are at work in a dark world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.